When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, The Mystery of the Blue Train by Agatha Christie, a Poirot mystery. Today, chapters 18, 19, and 20. And now, chapter 18, Derek Lunches. Derek Kettering went straight to the Negresco, where he ordered a couple of cocktails and disposed of them rapidly. Then he stared moodily out over the dazzling blue sea. He noted the passers-by mechanically, a damn dull crowd, badly dressed and painfully uninteresting. One hardly ever saw anything worthwhile nowadays. Then he corrected this last impression rapidly as a woman placed herself at a table a little distance away from him. She was wearing a marvelous confection of orange and black with a little hat that shaded her face. He ordered a third cocktail. Again he stared out to sea, and then suddenly he started. A well-known perfume assailed his nostrils, and he looked up to see the orange and black lady standing beside him. He saw her face now, and recognized her. It was Morel. She was smiling that insolent, seductive smile he knew so well. Derek, she murmured. "'You are pleased to see me, no?' She dropped into a seat the other side of the table." "'But welcome me, then, stupid one,' she mocked. "'Now this is an unexpected pleasure,' said Derek. "'When did you leave London?' She shrugged her shoulders. "'A day or two ago.' "'And the Parthenon?' "'I have, how do you say it, given them the chuck.' "'Really?' "'You are not very amiable, Derek.' "'Do you expect me to be?' Morel lit a cigarette and puffed at it for a few minutes before saying, "'You think, perhaps, that it is not prudent so soon?' Derek stared at her. Then he shrugged his shoulders and remarked formally, "'You are lunching here?' "'May we? I'm lunching with you.' "'I am extremely sorry,' said Derek. "'I have a very important engagement.' "'Mon Dieu!' "'But you men are like children,' exclaimed Morel. "'But, yes, it is the spoilt child that you act to me "'ever since that day in London "'when you flung yourself out of my flat, you sulk. "'Ah, mais say and we.' "'My dear girl,' said Derek, "'I really don't know what you are talking about. "'We agreed in London that rats desert a sinking ship. "'That is all there is to be said.' In spite of his careless words, his face looked haggard and strained. Morel leaned forward suddenly. "'You cannot deceive me,' she murmured. "'I know. I know what you have done for me.' 
He looked up at her sharply. Some undercurrent in her voice arrested his attention. She nodded her head at him. "'Ah, have no fear. I am discreet. You are magnificent. You have a superb courage. But all the same, it was I who gave you the idea that day, when I said to you in London that accidents sometimes happened. And you are not in danger? The police do not suspect you?' "'What the devil?' Hush! She held up a slim olive hand with one big emerald on the little finger. You are right. I should not have spoken so in a public place. We will not speak of the matter again. But our troubles are ended. Our life together will be wonderful. Wonderful. Derek laughed suddenly, a harsh, disagreeable laugh. Ha! So the rats come back, do they? Two million makes a difference. Well, of course it does. "'I ought to have known that. <laughs> "'You will help me to spend that two million, won't you, Morel? "'You know how. No woman better.' "'He laughed again. "'Hush!' cried the dancer. "'What is the matter with you, Derek? "'See, people are turning to stare at you. "'Me? I will tell you what is the matter. "'I have finished with you, Morel. Do you hear? Finished.' Morel did not take it as he expected her to do. She looked at him for a minute or two, and then she smiled softly. "'But what a child! You are angry, you are sore, and all because I am practical. Did I not always tell you that I adored you?' She leaned forward. "'But I know you, Derek. Look at me. See, it is Morel who speaks to you. You cannot live without her. You know it. I loved you before. I will love you a hundred times more now. I will make life wonderful for you. There is no one like Morel. Her eyes burned into his. She saw him grow pale and draw in his breath, and she smiled to herself contentedly. She knew her own magic and power over men. That is settled, she said softly, and gave a little laugh. And now, Derek. "'Will you give me lunch?' "'No.' "'He drew in his breath sharply and rose to his feet. "'I am sorry, but I told you. "'I have got an engagement.' "'You are lunching with someone else?' "'Ha! I don't believe it. "'I'm lunching with that lady over there.' "'He crossed abruptly to where a lady in white had just come up the steps. "'He addressed her a little breathlessly. "'Miss Gray, will you, will you have lunch with me?' "'You met me at Lady Templin's, if you remember.' "'Catherine looked at him for a minute or two "'with those thoughtful gray eyes that said so much. "'Thank you,' she said, after a moment's pause. "'I should like to very much.' "'We'll return with Chapter 19 "'right after these sponsor messages.' Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now Chapter 19, An Unexpected Visitor. 
The Comte de la Roche had just finished a déjeuner, consisting of an omelette fine herbe, an entrecote bernet, and a savarin rhum. Wiping his fine black moustache delicately with his table napkin, the Comte rose from the table. He passed through the salon of the villa, noting with appreciation the few objects d'art, which were carelessly scattered about. The Louis XV snuff-box, the satin shoe worn by Marie Antoinette, and other historic trifles were part of the Comte's mise-en-scene. They were, he would explain to his fair visitors, heirlooms in his family. Passing through onto the terrace, the Comte looked out on the Mediterranean with an unseen eye. He was in no mood for appreciating the beauties of scenery. A fully matured scheme had been rudely brought to naught, and his plans had to be cast afresh. Stretching himself out on a basket chair, a cigarette held between his white fingers, the Comte pondered deeply. Presently, Hippolyte, his manservant, brought out coffee and a choice of liqueurs. The Comte selected some very fine old brandy. As the manservant was preparing to depart, the Comte arrested him with a slight gesture. Hippolyte stood respectfully to attention. His countenance was hardly a prepossessing one, but the correctitude of his demeanor went far to obliterate the fact. He was now the picture of respectful attention. "'It is possible,' said the Comte, "'that in the course of the next few days various strangers may come to the house. They will endeavor to scrape acquaintance with you and with Marie. They will probably ask you various questions concerning me.' "'Yes, Monsieur le Comte. "'Perhaps this has already happened?' "'No, Monsieur le Comte. "'There have been no strangers about the place? "'You are certain?' "'There has been no one, Monsieur le Comte.' "'That is well,' said the Comte, dryly. "'Nevertheless, they will come. "'I am sure of it. "'And they will ask questions.' "'Hippolyte looked at his master in intelligent anticipation.' The Comte spoke slowly, without looking at Hippolyte. "'As you know, I arrived here last Tuesday morning. If the police or any other inquirer should question you, do not forget that fact. Last Tuesday morning. I arrived on Tuesday the 14th, not Wednesday the 15th. Do you understand?' "'Perfectly, Monsieur Le Comte. "'In an affair where a lady is concerned,' "'It is always necessary to be discreet. "'I feel certain, Hippolyte, that you can be discreet.' "'I can be discreet, monsieur.' "'And Marie?' "'Marie also. I will answer for her.' "'That is well, then,' murmured the Comte. "'When Hippolyte had withdrawn, "'the Comte sipped his black coffee with a reflective air. "'Occasionally he frowned. "'Once he shook his head slightly. "'Twice he nodded it. Into the midst of these cogitations came Hippolyte once more. A lady, monsieur. A lady? The Comte was surprised. Not that a visit from a lady was an unusual thing at the Villa Marina, but at this particular moment the Comte could not think who the lady was likely to be. She is, I think, a lady not loan to monsieur, murmured the valet helpfully. The Comte was more and more intrigued. "'Show her out here, Hippolyte,' he commanded. "'A moment later, a marvellous vision in orange and black "'stepped out on the terrace, "'accompanied by a strong perfume of exotic blossoms. "'Monsieur le Comte de la Roche,' 
"'At your service, mademoiselle,' said the Comte, bowing. "'My name is Morel. You have heard of me?' "'Ah, indeed, mademoiselle. But who has not been enchanted by the dancing of mademoiselle Morel? Exquisite!' The dancer acknowledged this compliment with a brief mechanical smile. "'My descent upon you is unceremonious,' she began. "'But seat yourself, I beg of you, mademoiselle,' cried the Comte, bringing forward a chair. Behind the gallantry of his manner he was observing her narrowly. There were very few things that the Comte did not know about women. True, his experience had not lain much in ladies of Morel's class, who were themselves predatory. He and the dancer were, in a sense, birds of a feather. His arts, the Comte knew, would be thrown away on Morel. She was a Parisienne, and a shrewd one. Nevertheless, there was one thing that the Comte could recognize infallibly when he saw it. He knew at once that he was in the presence of a very angry woman, and that angry woman, as the Comte was well aware, always says more than is prudent, and is occasionally a source of profit to a level-headed gentleman who keeps cool. "'It is most amiable of you, mademoiselle, to honor my poor abode, thus.' "'We have mutual friends in Paris,' said Morel. "'I have heard of you from them, but I come to see you today for another reason. "'I have heard of you since I come to Nice. "'In a different way, you understand.' "'Ah?' said the Comte, softly. "'I will be brutal,' continued the dancer. "'Nevertheless, believe that I have your welfare at heart. "'They are saying in Nice, Monsieur le Comte, "'that you are the murderer of the English lady, Madame Catherine.' "'I? The murderer of Madame Catherine? Pah! That's absurd!' He spoke more languidly than indignantly, knowing that he would thus provoke her further. "'But yes,' she insisted, "'it is as I tell you.' "'It amuses people to talk,' murmured the Comte indifferently. It would be beneath me to take such wild accusations seriously. You do not understand. Morel bent forward, her dark eyes flashing. It is not the idle talk of those in the streets. It is the police. The police, huh? The cop sat up, alert once more. Morel nodded her head vigorously several times. Yes, I see you comprehend me. I have friends everywhere. The prefect himself. She left the sentence unfinished, with an eloquent shrug of the shoulders. Who is not indiscreet where a beautiful woman is concerned? murmured the Count, politely. The police believe that you killed Madame Catherine, but they are wrong. Certainly they're wrong, agreed the Comte easily. You say that, but you do not know the truth. I do. The Comte looked at her curiously. "'You know who killed Madame Catherine? "'Is that what you would say, mademoiselle?' "'Morel nodded vehemently. "'Yes.' "'Who was it?' asked the cop, sharply. "'Her husband.' "'She bent nearer to the cop, "'speaking in a low voice that vibrated with anger and excitement. "'It was her husband who killed her.' "'The cop leaned back in his chair. "'His face was a mask.' 
Let me ask you, mademoiselle, how do you know this? How do I know it? Morel sprang to her feet with a laugh. He boasted of it beforehand. He was ruined, bankrupt, dishonored. Only the death of his wife could save him. He told me so. He traveled on the same train, but she was not to know it. Why was that, I ask you? So that he might creep upon her in the night. Ah! She shut her eyes. I can see it happening. The Count coughed. Perhaps, he murmured. But surely, mademoiselle, in that case, he would not steal the jewels. The jewels, breathed Morel. The jewels. Ah, those rubies. Her eyes grew misty, a faraway light in them. The Comte looked at her curiously, wondering for the hundredth time at the magical influence of precious stones on the female sex. He recalled her to practical matters. "'What do you want me to do, mademoiselle?' Morel became alert and businesslike once more. "'Surely it is simple. You will go to the police. You will say to them that Monsieur Catherine has committed this crime.' "'And if they don't believe me? If they ask for proof?' He was eyeing her closely. Morel laughed softly and drew her orange and black wrap closer round her. "'Send them to me, Monsieur le Comte,' she said softly. "'I will give them the proof they want.' Upon that she was gone, an impetuous whirlwind, her errand accomplished. The Comte looked after her, his eyebrows delicately raised. "'She's in a fury,' he murmured. "'What has happened now to upset her?' "'But she shows her hand too plainly.' Does she really believe that Mr. Kettering killed his wife? She would like me to believe it. She would even like the police to believe it. He smiled to himself. He had no intention whatsoever of going to the police. He saw various other possibilities, to judge by his smile, an agreeable vista of them. Presently, however, his brow clouded. According to Morel, he was suspected by the police. That might be true, or it might not. An angry woman, of the type of the dancer, was not likely to bother about the strict veracity of her statements. On the other hand, she might easily have obtained inside information. In that case, his mouth said grimly, in that case he must take certain precautions. He went into the house and questioned Hippolyte closely once more as to whether any strangers had been to the house. The valet was positive in his assurances that this was not the case. The comte went up to his bedroom and crossed over to an old bureau that stood against the wall. He let down the lid of this, and his delicate fingers sought for a spring at the back of one of the pigeonholes. A secret drawer flew out. In it was a small brown paper package. The comte took this out and weighed it in his hand carefully for a minute or two. Raising his hand to his head, with a slight grimace, he pulled out a single hair. This he placed on the lip of the drawer and shut it carefully. Still carrying the small parcel in his hand, he went downstairs and out of the house to the garage, where stood a scarlet two-seater car. Ten minutes later, he had taken the road for Monte Carlo. He spent a few hours at the casino, then sauntered out into the town. 
Presently he re-entered the car and drove off in the direction of Mentone. Earlier in the afternoon he had noticed an inconspicuous gray car some little distance behind him. He noticed it again now. He smiled to himself. The road was climbing steadily upwards. The comp's foot pressed hard on the accelerator. The little red car had been specially built to the comp's design and had a far more powerful engine than would have been suspected from its appearance. It shot ahead. Presently he looked back and smiled. The gray car was following behind. Smothered in dust, the little red car leaped along the road. It was traveling now at a dangerous pace, but the comp was a first-class driver. Now they were going downhill, twisting and curving unceasingly. Presently the car slackened speed, and finally came to a standstill before a bureau de poste. The comp jumped out, lifted the lid of the tool chest, extracted the small brown paper parcel, and hurried into the post office. Two minutes later he was driving once more in the direction of Mentone. When the gray car arrived there, the comp was drinking English five o'clock tea on the terrace of one of the hotels. Later he drove back to Monte Carlo, dined there, and reached home once more at eleven o'clock. Hippolyte came out to meet him with a disturbed face. Ah, Monsieur le Comte has arrived. Monsieur le Comte did not telephone me by any chance. The Comte shook his head. And yet, at three o'clock, I received a summons from Monsieur le Comte to present myself to him at Nice at the Negresco. Really? said the Comte. And you went? Certainly, Monsieur. But at the Negresco they knew nothing of Monsieur le Comte. He had not been there. Ah, said the Comte. "'Doubtless at that hour Marie was out doing her afternoon marketing.' "'That is so, Monsieur le Comte.' "'Ah, well,' said the Comte. "'It is of no importance. A mistake.' He went upstairs, smiling to himself. Once within his own room, he bolted his door and looked sharply round. Everything seemed as usual. He opened various drawers and cupboards. Then he nodded to himself. Things had been replaced almost exactly as he had left them, but not quite. It was evident that a very thorough search had been made. He went over to the bureau and pressed a hidden spring. The drawer flew open, but the hair was no longer where he had placed it. He nodded his head several times. "'They are excellent, our French police,' he murmured to himself. "'Excellent. Nothing escapes them.' And now chapter 20. Catherine Makes a Friend On the following morning, Catherine and Lennox were sitting on the terrace of the Villa Marguerite. Something in the nature of a friendship was springing up between them, despite the difference in age. But for Lennox, Catherine would have found life at the Villa Marguerite quite intolerable. The Kettering case was the topic of the moment. Lady Tamplin frankly exploited her guest's connection with the affair for all it was worth. The most persistent rebuffs that Catherine could administer quite failed to pierce Lady Tamplin's self-esteem. Lennox adopted a detached attitude, seemingly amused at her mother's maneuvers, and yet with a sympathetic understanding of Catherine's feelings. The situation was not helped by Chubby, whose naive delight was unquenchable, and who introduced Catherine to all and sundry as, "'This is Miss Gray. You know that blue train business?' She was in it up to her ears. 
"'had a long talk with Ruth Kettering "'just a few hours before the murder. "'Better luck for her, eh?' "'A few remarks of this kind "'had provoked Catherine that morning "'to an unusually tart rejoinder, "'and when they were alone together, "'Lennox observed in her slow drawl, "'Not used to exploitation, are you? "'You have a lot to learn, Catherine.' "'I'm sorry I lost my temper. "'I don't, as a rule.' "'It's about time you learned to blow off steam. "'Chubby's only an ass. "'There's no harm in him. "'Mother, of course, is trying, "'but you can lose your temper with her "'until kingdom come, "'and it won't make any impression. "'She will open large, sad blue eyes at you "'and not care a bit.' "'Catherine made no reply to this filial observation, "'and Lennox presently went on. "'I am rather like Chubby. "'I delight in a good murder.' "'And besides, well, knowing Derek makes a difference.' "'Catherine nodded. "'So you lunched with him yesterday,' pursued Lennox reflectively. "'Do you like him, Catherine?' "'Catherine considered for a minute or two. "'I don't know,' she said very slowly. "'He is very attractive.' "'Yes, he's attractive. "'What don't you like about him?' Catherine did not reply to the question, or at any rate, not directly. "'He spoke of his wife's death,' she said. "'He said he would not pretend that it had been anything but a bit of the most marvelous luck for him.' "'And that shocked you, I suppose?' said Lennox. She paused, and then added in a rather queer tone of voice, "'He likes you, Catherine.' "'He gave me a very good lunch,' said Catherine, smiling." "'Lennox refused to be sidetracked. "'I saw it the night he came here,' she said thoughtfully. "'The way he looked at you. "'And you are not his usual type. "'In fact, just the opposite. "'Well, I suppose it is like religion. "'You get it at a certain age.' "'Mademoiselle is wanted at the telephone,' said Marie, "'appearing at the window of the salon.' Monsieur Hercule Poirot desires to speak with her. More blood and thunder. Go on, Catherine. Go and daily, go and dally with your detective. Monsieur Hercule Poirot's voice came neat and precise in its intonation to Catherine's ear. Is this Mademoiselle Gray who speaks? Bon. Mademoiselle, I have a word for you from Monsieur Benalden, the father of Madame Catherine. "'He wishes very much to speak with you, "'either at the Villa Marguerite or his hotel, "'whichever you prefer.' "'Catherine reflected for a moment, "'but she decided that for Van Alden to come to the Villa Marguerite "'would be both painful and unnecessary. "'Lady Tamplin would have hailed his advent with far too much delight. "'She never lost a chance of cultivating millionaires. "'She told Poirot that she would much rather come to Nice. "'Excellent, mademoiselle. "'I will call for you myself in an auto.' "'Shall we say, in three-quarters of an hour?' Punctually to the moment, Poirot appeared. Catherine was waiting for him, and they drove off at once. "'Well, mademoiselle, how goes it?' She looked at his twinkling eyes and was confirmed in her first impression that there was something very attractive about Monsieur Hercule Poirot. "'This is our own Roman policier, is it not?' said Poirot. I made you the promise that we should study it together, and to me 
I always keep my promises. You are too kind, murmured Catherine. Ah, you mock yourself at me, but do you want to hear the developments of the case, or do you not? Catherine admitted that she did, and Poirot proceeded to sketch for her a thumbnail portrait of the Comte de la Roche. You think he killed her, said Catherine, thoughtfully. That is the theory, said Poirot, guardedly. Do you yourself believe that? I did not say so. And you, mademoiselle, what do you think? Catherine shook her head. How would I know? I don't know anything about those things. But I should say that... Yes, said Poirot, encouragingly. Well, from what you say, the Count does not sound the kind of man who would actually kill anybody. Ah, very good, cried Poirot. You agree with me. That is just what I have said. He looked at her sharply. But tell me, have you met Mr. Derek Ketri? I met him at Lady Templin's, and I lunched with him yesterday. A mauvais sujet, said Poirot, shaking his head. But les femmes, they like that, eh? He twinkled at Catherine, and she laughed. He is the kind of man one would notice anywhere, continued Poirot. "'Doubtless you observed him on the blue train.' "'Yes, I noticed him. "'In the restaurant car?' "'No, I didn't notice him at meals at all. "'I only saw him once, going into his wife's compartment.' Poirot nodded. "'A strange business,' he murmured. "'I believe you said you were awake, mademoiselle, "'and looked out of your window at Lyon?' "'You saw no tall, dark man such as the Comte de la Roche lead the train?' "'Catherine shook her head. "'I don't think I saw anyone at all,' she said. "'There was a youngest lad in a cap and overcoat who got out, "'but I don't think he was leaving the train, "'only walking up and down the platform. "'There was a fat Frenchman with a beard, "'in pajamas and an overcoat, "'who wanted a cup of coffee. "'Otherwise, I think there were only the train attendants.' Poirot nodded his head several times. "'It is like this, you see,' he confided. "'The Comte de la Roche has an alibi. "'An alibi, it is a very pestilential thing, "'and always open to the gravest suspicion. "'But here we are.' "'They went straight up to Van Alden's suite, "'where they found Knighton. "'Poirot introduced him to Catherine. "'After a few commonplaces had been exchanged,' Knighton said, "'I will tell Mr. Van Alden that Miss Gray is here.' He went through a second door into an adjoining room. There was a low murmur of voices, and then Van Alden came into the room and advanced towards Catherine with an outstretched hand, giving her at the same time a shrewd and penetrating glance. "'I am pleased to meet you, Miss Gray,' he said simply. "'I have been wanting very badly to hear what you can tell me about Ruth.' The quiet simplicity of the millionaire's manner appealed to Catherine strongly. She felt herself in the presence of a very genuine grief, the more real for its absence of outward sign. He drew forward a chair. "'Sit here, will you, and just tell me all about it.' Poirot and Knighton retired discreetly into the other room, and Catherine and Van Alden were left alone together. She found no difficulty in her task— 
Quite simply and naturally, she related her conversation with Ruth Kettering, word for word, as nearly as she could. He listened in silence, leaning back in his chair, with one hand shading his eyes. When she had finished, he said quietly, "'Thank you, my dear.' They both sat silent for a minute or two. Catherine felt that words of sympathy would be out of place. When the millionaire spoke, it was in a different tone. "'I am very grateful to you, Miss Gray. I think you did something to ease my poor Ruth's mind in the last hours of her life. Now I want to ask you something. You know, Monsieur Poirot will have told you, about the scoundrel that my poor girl had got herself mixed up with.' "'He was the man of whom she spoke to you, "'the man she was going to meet. "'In your judgment, "'do you think she might have changed her mind "'after her conversation with you? "'Do you think she meant to go back on her word?' "'I can't honestly tell you. "'She had certainly come to some decision "'and seemed more cheerful in consequence of it. "'She gave you no idea "'where she intended to meet the skunk, "'whether in Paris or at here?' Catherine shook her head. She said nothing as to that. Ah, said Van Alden, thoughtfully, and that is the important point. Well, time will show. He got up and opened the door of the adjoining room. Poirot and Knighton came back. Catherine declined the millionaire's invitation to lunch, and Knighton went down with her and saw her into the waiting car. He returned to find Poirot and Van Alden deep in conversation. "'If we only knew,' said the millionaire thoughtfully, "'what decision Ruth came to. "'It might have been any of half a dozen. "'She might have meant to leave the train at Paris and cable to me. "'She may have meant to have gone on to the south of France "'and have an explanation with the Count there. "'We are in the dark, absolutely in the dark. "'But we have the maid's word for it "'that she was both startled and dismayed "'at the Count's appearance at the station in Paris.' "'That was clearly not part of the preconceived plan. "'You agree with me, Knighton?' "'The secretary started. "'Ah, I beg your pardon, Mr. Van Alden. "'I wasn't listening.' "'Daydreaming, eh?' said Van Alden. "'That's not like you. "'I believe that girl has bowled you over.' "'Knighton blushed. "'She is a remarkably nice girl,' said Van Alden thoughtfully. "'Very nice.' "'Did you happen to notice her eyes?' "'Any man,' said Knighton, "'would be bound to notice her eyes.' "'We'll return with more chapters "'of The Mystery of the Blue Train by Agatha Christie "'next week Sunday at noon Eastern Time. "'Until then, everyone, stay safe, "'please share our show with others, "'and please do send us a review "'at 1001 Stories for the Road "'for The Mystery of the Blue Train. "'We would appreciate that.' Very, very much. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.